Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. On February 1st, 1960, four North Carolina A&T University students began a sit-in at the Greensboro Woodworth Department Store as a protest to the discriminatory lunch counter policy and tradition which prevented African-Americans from being served alongside whites. Acting independently and without any organizational support, these four students decided to confront a widespread Jim Crow practice and policy which supported the then prevailing notion of white supremacy. That bold and courageous decision by the ANT4 triggered a national movement which inspired and energized young African-Americans from around the United States to challenge Jim Crow rules, regulations, and laws which existed at the time within their local communities. This was the beginning of the youth-led civil rights movement. Two months later, that demonstration resulted in the organization of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, during a national conference which was held at Shaw University. As a direct result of the many successes which were forced by the civil rights movement, African-Americans are now privileged to participate in areas of business, education, politics, and community affairs, which were previously unavailable in the 1960s. Despite these successes, which were achieved over the past 60 years, racial bias, discrimination, and repression continue to be present within American society. Today, as this racial victimization continues, the question is posed, where are our young leaders and activists and what are they doing to confront the issues which continue to confront African-Americans? So tonight, we seek to discuss that question. Joining us for this conversation are attorney Nana Asante Smith, who is the president of the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers, Ajamu Dillahunt Holloway, a historian, a PhD student at the University of Michigan, a community activist and alum of North Carolina Central University, and Professor Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, NCC Law School clinical professor and a member of the North Carolina State Bar Council. So thanks to uh, each of you for uh, joining with us this evening. Thanks for having us. Right. Thank you for having us. Okay, thank you for taking that time. I know that you all are very busy in all of the many things that you are doing, and uh, we appreciate, uh, really, uh, your contribution to this uh, discussion. So at the outset, let me just ask each of you to kind of briefly describe uh, your background and your life's journey 
that ended up with you being in the professional position that you are in at uh, at present? And since uh, uh, the males are outnumbered, uh, we'll start with the uh, females uh, for uh, for this discussion. So, uh, attorney uh, uh, attorney Smith, why don't you uh, give us a brief review of your life's history here? Yes, absolutely. I'll, I'll be brief. I, I heard your emphasis on brief. Um, so I was born in Accra, Ghana and lived in Ghana until I was seven years old um, and then moved to Madison, Wisconsin with my family. So to say the least, that was a pretty jarring um, transition. Um, and I would say that was the first time in my life growing up in Madison was really the juncture in my life when I started to confront um, and had to really acknowledge the external and internal racial issues. And, and I'm talking about kind of the dynamics between being an African, you know, girl at the time and what that meant to be an African girl in a place like Wisconsin and how that informed my relationship um, with my African-American counterparts because there was a tension there that I had to acknowledge. So I really think that was the impetus um, for my desire to go into this work and to learn about how I could kind of reconcile those tensions and also be kind of a productive leader um, in such discussions. Okay, let's uh, then go with uh, Professor uh, Harrison Mitchell. I got to follow the brief. Um, <laughs> I am half African-American and half Korean. My mom was Korean and my dad's African-American. Um, and I'm of the age where when I grew up, being biracial was not as um, great of a thing as it, as it may be looked at now. Is um, you know A lot of people see it as, oh, this is great. You have these different cultures and all of that good stuff. And I grew up in a time where People didn't understand it. They didn't. A lot of people didn't like it. Didn't agree with it. They, um, you know. So I kind of like what uh, Nana was talking about. I had I faced a lot of kind of internal racism. You know, dealing with issues from my African American family and you know people African American community as well as the Korean side um, and vice versa on both sides. And then being looked at as not even being Korean but being. Chinese or Japanese or whatever, and people not understanding the difference between those different cultures. Um, but I, yes, those things probably shaped me and helped um, guide me or push me into wanting to have a career in law. But I, I mean, I have to be honest and say, as far as the what got me here, I, you know, I was the biggest daddy's girl and probably still am a daddy's girl to this day. And my dad always wanted to be a lawyer. And because he wanted to be a lawyer, I wanted to be a lawyer. That's how it kind of started, right? But it also goes back to, you know, I have so much respect for my dad. Um, and I see him, he's kind of like a, well, back when I was little, he was like a god to me. And anything that he said and did um, was great to me. And he was and still is one of those persons that speaks up for other people and, you know, fights for, you know, what is right and, tells me to be confident in who I am and you know even my his now grandkids and he's still that kind of person so I think those are the things that shaped me as well as you know experiencing those different things that I had to experience you know with the two different sides of me and the two parts I wouldn't say sides the two parts of me that make up who I am um, those different things you know shape my viewpoint on things and you know push me into this this area and uh, brother Jamu 
Yeah, uh, so as a high school student in Southeast Raleigh, uh, attending Southeast Raleigh School, uh, I had uh, a struggle in 2014 as a junior uh, to end the school to prison pipeline. Uh, and after participating in that, you know, my junior and senior year, uh, I had I known that when I when I when I you know go to college, I need to be at a place where uh, I can help advance uh, the struggle uh, for Black freedom forward. You know, I want to be uh, active, you know, participant uh, in the struggle. And it so happened that you know I think it was my senior year, uh, NCCU School of Law had held a, a panel discussion on the school to prison pipeline. Uh, and I had been invited, you know, as a panelist. And so as a high school student uh, to see uh, a law school uh, being committed, you know, to the struggle for social transformation and pushing the cause forward and taking the stand to end the school to prison pipeline. Uh, you know, I had been uh, attracted to that. And, you know, I said NCCU has a long history. My mother, you know, went there. My aunt went there and my other aunt went there. And then my grandmother got her master's. Uh, from NCCU. So it, it only, it only, you know, it felt right. Uh, my plan coming in was to be a legal eagle. I was going to study political science uh, and then go directly into the law school. Uh, but as a student uh, and participating in, you know, various student organizing activities, uh, the struggle against voter suppression, uh, the struggle against the Board of Governors, you know, all these different things, uh, I had been inspired by a class with Dr. Jarvis Hall in the Department of Political Science. Uh, and he said, if you don't remember anything from this class, you will remember the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And so as I began to learn about SNCC and the history of the Black freedom struggle, it began to inform how I approached uh, my work as a, as a student, student activist. And so I said, if the past can do this, I really want to understand it more. And then, you know, I began to uh, dig deeper, take classes on African presence in Europe. I mean, uh, you know, NCCU just provided a host of, of classes for me to understand uh, uh, the, the Black experience. Uh, and I wanted to further understand it, not just to understand it, but to use it as a tool of social transformation. I wanted to use the past to inspire uh, other young people and other oppressed people to take action uh, like it was done for me in the Department of Political Science and History and the law school. So I would say I enrolled in the PhD program to to move move our cause forward. Now you 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 all are in various different various paths toward your uh, professional attainment. Can you kind of talk a little bit about what was there about your journey that different differentiated you from other people that you grew grew up with and who did not end up in the kind of uh, privileged arena that, uh, that you now uh, find yourself. Uh, uh, Nana, why don't we start with you on that one? Yeah, I would identify one of those um, differences as being the privilege, uh, the privilege I had in terms of my family's socioeconomic status. Um, and also the, the reality that I came, I'm from a lineage of um, folks where I wasn't a first-generation college student. Um, both of my parents had advanced degrees. And I think owning that and recognizing that as a privilege in itself is important uh, because I, a lot of my counterparts did not necessarily have parents or grandparents, for example, who um, had college degrees or had, you know, th those, that kind of advanced education. And I think I think it's naive of anyone to suggest that those kinds of that kind of history in one's family 
doesn't influence one's uh, one's path. Now, I'm not saying it's dispositive of one's path, uh, but I think the reality is that having those resources, having parents who have navigated right the educational pipeline, definitely set a foundation to me that I think was integral um, and and really kind of created that line of demarcation. Unfortunately. Uh, between myself, my siblings, um, and our counterparts. So I would I would identify that privilege, a socioeconomic and educational background, um, as being one of those two of those factors. Okay. And Dorothy, what is your take on that? I think for me, um, I didn't have the same kind of um, socioeconomic status or background that Nana speaks of in her family, um, but I didn't know it. <laughs> I didn't feel it. Um, I had the kind of dad that, you know, we had everything that we needed um, and a lot of what we wanted and I didn't see anything different. You know, for me, what I saw different was probably, you know, being raised by a single black father, you know, and me and my brother were raised by my dad. Um, he raised us on, alone primarily. Um, and my mom was in the military and my, but when I was really, really young, my dad was in the military. So we traveled a lot. And so I think that experience helped shape me and, you know, gave me a different kind of privilege that most people wouldn't call a privilege. Um, but I see it as one because it, it gave me a, a different outlook and viewpoint on the world and diversity and people and just all those different things. And I, you know, all those experiences shape who I am, as well as my dad was and still is the kind of dad is like, there is nothing that you cannot do. Anything you set your mind to, you can do it. Just because you're black or people see you as black or people see you as biracial or you're a girl or whatever, none of those things should be barriers for you. And so I had that constantly. You know, I also had the kind of dad that was kind of like, don't take any junk off anybody and don't let anybody think they can walk all over you. And, you know, I feel like to this day, I have a lot of what I call male tendencies or male ways of viewing things um, and pro-black way of viewing things because of the way my dad was. Um, and so I have to, you know, try to keep that in mind when I'm raising my kids, you know, and keep the, the further those great things and keep that going. But at the same time, kind of scale it back a little bit. Um, and I know we're going to get to some of that <laughs> further in the discussion, but I would say those things because my dad, while he may not, he didn't end up graduating from college. He went to college, took a lot of college classes. Um, my dad was one of those that when he was a well, he actually did graduate from college, but he didn't graduate from the four-year college that he would have wanted to graduate from because he was raising me and my brother. And so he would take us to class with him. I remember being a kid sitting in the class. And when he saw that we had certain interests, he would find programs and different things for us to participate in. And so I was going to, I mean, I was sitting on mock juries and trials and those different things when I was like nine. You know what I mean? Because my dad would just find all these different things because he knew that was my interest. So I think that that is what pushed me. And then on the other side, I have a Korean mom who was the epitome of a Korean woman. Okay. And that means you have to have all A's. There is no coming home with, you know, certain kind of grades and um, that's just unacceptable. And it's just a whole different culture. So I think both of those, you know, those, I see those as privileges. You know what I mean? I see those as positives where a lot of people may see that as negatives and things that, you know, I wish I would have had it differently, but I would not have changed any of those things. And I think that's who makes me who I am. Adamu. Yeah. So, um, you know, my, my mom had uh, went to North Carolina Central University uh, and finished, you know, undergrad. And then my father uh, didn't go to college. Uh, he, he's a um, he's a plumber. 
but I, I think in terms of my approach to education and the privilege that I have comes from my grandparents. So my, my grandparents met at West Virginia State University uh, and then uh, went to New York. Uh, and then my, my grandfather uh, got his master's uh, in African studies. And then my grandmother uh, got her master's in uh, special education. Uh, but after leaving New York, you know, they moved south. Uh, the reason you know they went south was primarily political reasons, and they didn't uh, seek to get you know jobs in, in terms of the professional aspect. Uh, they you know got jobs that embedded them in the working class, and so my my grandfather began to work at the post office, uh, and my grandmother uh, was the school teacher, and they were both very active in their unions. And so uh, from my mother and my aunts, and you know down to me, um, I was able to see education you know not as an individualistic thing, but as something uh, to to transform society, to use it as a tool uh, to help you know help uh, our struggle. So uh, I was lucky enough to have you know grandparents uh, who had embedded themselves in the working class uh, and wanted us to uh, shape our careers, our lives in service of the working class. All right. This is the uh, legal legal review, and uh, we're talking with uh, Jamu uh, Dillahunt, uh, Nana Asante Smith and Dorothy Harrison Mitchell uh, talking about the uh, role and responsibilities of younger African-Americans in, uh, who are in the profession and their uh, responsibility and uh, goals toward helping to advance the uh, struggle for uh, African-Americans. We're going to take a break uh, right now. I want you to uh, stay with us and we will be right back. Since 2010, the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre-law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self-advocacy. Both the pre-law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high-definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and, and I have been talking with three wonderful uh, riveting guests with such interesting backgrounds. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, attorney Nana Asante Smith. She is president of the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers. 
Ajamu Dillahunt Holloway. He is a historian, PhD candidate at the University of Michigan, community activist and alum of North Carolina Central University. And we also have our very own Professor Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, who is a law professor here with us at the law school. Uh, and she is a member of the North Carolina State Bar Council and also a double eagle. So uh, really appreciate the three of you sharing your perspectives and your experiences. Um, and one of the things that um, a commonality that kind of goes through all of your stories was the emphasis of, of education. And all of you are in a, a, profess, a profession and thinking about how it is that you can serve the community. And Ajamu, even though you're still in your studies, that you've got a vision towards um, understanding the history and then sharing that history. And even in your student advocacy work, uh, you educate others. And I wanted you all to comment on how do you, um, what are your thoughts when you're thinking about um, sharing your understanding and your goals of service to the larger community, because all three of you had very supportive uh, environments. Uh, as I mentioned before, you know, all of you had uh, folks in your lives who were emphasizing education. That's not the case for so many in our community. So how do you think about the best way that you can serve the community and inspire uh, young people who may not have the, the same type of foundation or the support system that each of you had growing up. Can I start? Absolutely. All right. Well, so I, I really appreciate that question, uh, Professor Dawson, because I think this conversation is really highlighting the ways um, and depth of how we were raised, how that influences what we do even now. Although, again, it's not determinative um, or dispositive it has great influence. So when I hear that question, I think about cultural dif differences, right? I think about my approach to service being one that aims to recognize that black people are not a monolith. And what I mean by that is as someone who grew up in Ghana and culturally in the home, my parents were very Ghanaian in terms of Ghanaian ideals or African ideals and um, forms of discipline and our beliefs and the core really and truly the core of our home was education. Um, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that in this country, white people, African-Americans, et cetera, do not value education. But I think it's safe to say the way in which education was the core of our home differed so great, greatly for my siblings and I, as opposed to our um, as our counter, as opposed to our counterparts, both African American and white, um, and sometimes I think people would describe that foundation or bedrock of education as sometimes being a little intense and aggressive because everything we did, uh, pretty much everything we did, was rooted in education. Right? I mean, if there was, if you were not getting good grades. I mean, there was no more discussion to be had. And by, by good grades, I mean, even an A minus was questionable in our household, right? So I think really in a moment of pure transparency, that created the slightly elitist part of me that exists in me, right? Um, and I don't think it's a bad thing. It's a, it's a part of 
kind of, I think our culture that I embrace, I think how it manifests itself in actions is what's important. Um, but that's what really, really led me to put such a great emphasis on education, again, as even being the bedrock of service um, and advocacy, which is not, which uh, as I grow and I learn, I'm learning is not necessarily true, right? I'm learning that education takes different forms for people, right? And education and learning is not limited to, as I was doing in high school, memorizing the college rankings and only applying to write a certain echelon of school uh, of schools. Education transcends that. Um, so I, I would say that kind of recognition is how I've tried to inform my service and how I tried to conduct myself to ensure that I don't let my culture that I embrace also swallow me, right? And I allow my, learn my, my learning and my culture to evolve over time, especially when I try to understand how education and service and advocacy um, can be married in a way that is productive and that allows for evolution. I would say that I actually view everything that I do as some form of service. Um, and I say that in this sense, like, even coming back here to the law school to teach full time, I see that as a form of service. Even though I get paid and this is what I do for a living, that's not what motivates me. What motivates me is the fact that I get to run the juvenile law clinic. And the, first, the first thing is I get to run the juvenile law clinic, which means that me and my students get to interact with children who are having some kind of negative experience or which should be seen as negative, right? That some experience that could be completely negative or could be transformed into some kind of way positive for them when they're because they're interacting with the court system or with court counselors or police officers or school personnel or whatever, whomever, right? So because we get to interact with those kids, I see what we're doing as in some way helping to reshape the way they view the system first of all, because all of us come to the table with a set of ideals and morals and values and all these things which shape how we view the court system and all of these different other types of systems. Um, so how they view the system and hopefully we can reshape that for them and help them feel a little bit better about all the different people that they may encounter, that not everybody is out to get them because unfortunately, the, hot, the, the kids that we have as clients more often than not, or more likely than not, I would say, are children of color. And so because of that, and because I know that, and that's just the, the way it is, even though we know that children of color are not the only children that are getting in trouble and doing things that they shouldn't do that, that causes them to have to encounter or be involved with the court system. They're not the only ones, and they certainly aren't at the high numbers that they look to be. Um, but because we have that kind of interaction, I, I see it as, well, let us be a mentor to these kids or let us be some positive role model for these kids and help them feel better about who they are. Maybe help them learn more about who they are as a person, help them see an adult that really wants to listen to them and that would not just hear what they're saying, but actually listen to what they're saying and what may be going on and, you know, other ways and helping them in their home life and, you know, in their school and just overall, just let them have someone that they can, they see in a more positive way. So that's the first item. And then of course, being able to interact with law students in general, you know, I see it as a form of service because I hope that my career and the choices that I've made professionally and personally are good, uh, or I'm being a good role model to law students. 
um, and anybody else that's around me. And so I help hopefully teach them to want to give back and see it as just just a way of being and not something that I just do because I want to put it on my resume. Like, you know, even being a bar council member, you know, I sought that position because I, the first thing I thought of was one, there's not a lot of us over there us as in not a people not a lot of people of color not a lot of women but not a lot of people of color in general um and so i want to be one of those first to be able to you know forge away forge through as well as the next thing immediately i'm thinking who can i pull let me get somebody like nana on this committee let me get somebody you know get these younger attorneys bring them over and educate them about what kind of service it is to be on the bar council and what things that he can do that is always the way i'm thinking i'm never doing anything about me and for me. If I did, I wouldn't be doing it because I'm spread thin. And so I just, you know, that's the way I approach it. I see every single thing that I do as some form of service. And so if I'm sitting on a board or if I'm at the church meeting and they're talking about different things and how can we do, I'm like, oh, well, we can, we can bring some people over and we can educate you all this way and we can get you connected up with somebody at the law school to do, you know what I mean? It's always, I'm always thinking of how can I connect people and how can I show people that we can serve in other ways that may not be the more traditional ways that people think about, but more on that, I like that kind of grassroots level. You know, that every day I have this personal relationship with you. So that's my form of service is to be able to reach back to you and help you in that kind of way. It, and um, yeah, thank you all for sharing those uh, powerful examples of uh, aspects of, of service. Uh, definitely uh, inspiration. I'm glad to be in discussion with so many uh, inspiring lawyers. <laughs> uh, and and in, the, in the context of, um, of, you know, the historical uh, profession uh, and I guess, you know, uh, the crisis that exists of the historical consciousness uh, in K through 12 education in a larger society. Um, I'm in a class at the moment uh, that we're looking at the historian's craft. Uh, and one of the major responsibilities uh, that is being defined uh, as you know, the role of the professional historian is a public duty. Uh, and I think that public duty can be interpreted uh, in a different ways. It can be public history, uh, but the way I see it is taking history to the people. Uh, I th- through 12 education and even at moments uh, education in college can be you know forms of over historical simplification I mean pe- the, the past is reduced uh, to a narrow understanding of certain things uh, and so in order to address that problem in order to address that crisis uh, I think one has to be engaged uh, with the struggle to make the world a better place uh, but also you have to take uh, the history to the people and in honor of Black History Month I think we have to uh, show some love to Carter G. Woodson who did just that. And early uh, Black historians, whether it be Anna J. Cooper or whether it be W.B. Du Bois or Carter G. Woodson, they never uh, limited their contributions to the academy. Uh, oftentimes, you know, a lot of people, especially within the historical profession, uh, get so consumed and institutionalized uh, that the, the greater cause of, uh, you know, making history accessible to the people gets overlooked. And my advisor, Dr. Piro Dagbovi, wrote a book uh, on Carter G. Woodson, and I want to read from a page. It's, it's this one, two sentences that he talks about Woodson's view on Black history. He said, one of Woodson's most important contributions to the early Black history movement was his mission and ability to transform Black history into a practical and popular medium for uplifting Blacks and challenging racial prejudice. 
said in adopting this approach, he did not uh, de-emphasize the role of rigorous scholarship in the life and death struggle for Black liberation. On the other hand, he maintain, maintained that in addition to being uh, founded on rigorous research, the study uh, and dissemination of Black history should extend to the working class and youthful sectors of the Black community. Uh, and if you know, we understand and we have an assessment of the Black community, we understand that uh, roughly 90% of the Black community is working class and oftentimes uh, don't have access uh, to uh, higher education. And in fact, it, their K through 12 education is limited. Uh, so in order to bring that sense of hope, bring that sense of excitement uh, and to you know, ensure people understand that they too uh, can you know, uh, achieve certain things uh, through struggle, uh, you know, I think, you know, when we popularize history, that that helps aid that process that gives students a certain confidence. And that kind of is shaped by my own experience. I mean, before I got engaged in the struggle to end the school to prison pipeline, I mean, I was just playing soccer and, you know, that was it. I mean, I, I was kind of lost in terms of what I wanted to do, but it was uh, through the movement, through joining the effort to make the world a better place, joining an effort to end the school to prison pipeline really showed me uh, that another way, another world was possible. Uh, and so I think once we begin to show young people, begin to show uh, the community, the working class, you know, their power, uh, I believe, you know, uh, by nature, we'll be able to influence uh, different types of, of, uh, of education, whether it be vocational training, you know, things of that nature, not just limited to the academy, but uh, people-centered institutions. Well, let me just follow up and, and just ask uh, each of you, uh, how, how, how did race impact uh, your journey? Uh, what was uh, the uh, impact of uh, any racial discrimination or bias or prejudice that you encountered on that journey? Uh, how did that uh, 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 kind of guide you through upward to where you are now? I would say that my internal kind of battles with racism really as it pertained, really my battle with my identity um, as an African girl growing up and how I fit into like kind of not just in a place like Wisconsin, right? But also with my African-American counterparts, that challenge in and of itself really reaffirmed my commitment to the larger issues because I felt like when I was in a place where I was unsure of myself or not confident uh, and beaming with pride in my identity, I wasn't able to then also take on the struggle right for beyond myself. So it's like I had to conquer that. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm 100% there. We're never ever 100% there. But until I made meaningful progress in, with my internal struggles, I wasn't able to then appreciate what my role was and could be in the larger struggle. So that really informed, I would say that that really informed um, how I engaged in that process and in that journey. I think my experience of being biracial um, shaped my viewpoint as in this way, because I was raised by such a strong black father and one that had has such a strong sense of pride in who he is. He also had a strong sense of pride in who my mother was and the Korean culture. And so I never had any of this, you know, internal kind of thing of black people are better than Koreans or Koreans are better or this party, you know, people joke about different things like, oh, the Korean side. And I even have said things like this, the Korean side of me 
would see it this way or the African-American side would see it this way or whatever. But in essence, it's all the same because of the two parents that I had. Now, I'm, I'm sure that there are other biracial people who see, you know, feel differently. And I have met a lot of people who are biracial. And I've learned in my in the more recent um, racial equity trainings that I participate in that I have been one of those persons that kind of side eye another biracial person. If I see them, if they're half African American, for instance, if they're half Asian and something else, or they're half African American and Asian or whatever, especially if it's the two that I am, I look at them with a side eye if they don't fully embrace both races. I look at them like, what is wrong with you? How could you do that? How are you, you know, disregarding your parents and different things like that? And I learned that that's not really the way I should be. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't realize until recently that I did that, you know, because I just, because I'm so engulfed and I have so much pride in both sides. Like, I was one of those persons that if you put on, I remember distinctly being in law school and they used to have the forms and they make, force you to put your race. And back then it was it was only black, white, Asian, whatever. It, it was no other and it was no, you could pick both. And I would mess up the chart, the, the surveys and things every single time because I would put Asian and black. And I would have all these heated discussions with people about, well, no, you're just black. And I'm like, I'm not just black. I'm, I'm half Korean and I'm half black. Like I'm genuinely that. I'm not this, you know, like some people talk about that I'm one fourth this and I'm one eighth this and I'm this and that, you know what I mean? All this. I'm genuinely my mom and my dad. And if you force me to pick one, then you're forcing me to deny one of my parents and one part of me. And I'm not going to do that. So I think that those things help shape the way I view other people, definitely, and, and how I approach different things. And I approach people like I think that I'm I believe that I'm more sympathetic to people's you know culture and their background and you know more understanding and I try to you know come from that perspective um, but at the same time like I said I recognized recently and I will freely admit be transparent that you know that's something that that one thing is something that I need to work on and maybe I have to take a more sympathetic approach to those people and say well why do you feel that way why do you um, not embrace both sides of you and, and maybe understand because I know at, at least for half Korean people, there are lots and probably millions of biracial people and children, especially that are half Korean, that have the experience of not knowing that side of them and not being able to connect with that side of them. So they just kind of push it out, you know, at bay and they don't want to know that side. And so they see that as such a negative thing. So they only identify with the white side or they only identify with the African-American side. And because that's not the experience I had, I couldn't understand it. So I think that, you know, it's, it's helped me to view things a little bit better um, and want to be more sympathetic to those things. All right. Well, you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking with attorney Nana Asante Smith. She is president of the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers, Ajamu Dillahunt Holloway, historian, PhD student at the University of Michigan, and alum of North Carolina Central University, and Professor Dorothy Harrison Mitchell. She is an NCCU law clinical professor and a member of the North Carolina State Bar Council. We're going to have to take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back.
Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show, or past episodes, or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening. back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for uh, staying with us as we uh, continue uh, this discussion on uh, roles and responsibilities of uh, young African-American professionals. Uh, and we seek to uh, chart out a way uh, and the path that uh, African-Americans should engage in to improve the situation that our people find themselves and we're talking with uh, attorney uh, Nana Asante Smith, who is the president of the uh, North Carolina Association of, uh, of, of Black Lawyers. And I must congratulate her on uh, being reelected as the uh, president of uh, that uh, trailblazing uh, organization. Uh, Thank you. Professor uh, Dorothy uh, Harrison uh, Mitchell, who is a clinical professor at uh, North Carolina Central uh, Law School. And uh, we lost uh, uh, Jamu Dillahunt uh, for uh, the latter part of this uh, uh, discussion. But uh, bringing us back, I just want to you know, just pose to, to both of you, what, what, what do you see as uh, your role uh, as an individual and as a professional in helping to shape the path for other uh, African-Americans and people of color as they confront and encounter uh, instances of uh, racial discrimination, racial bias and uh, animosity uh, that uh, continue to exist uh, in, uh, in our society. So uh, while we're going back to uh, Nana and start with you. Yeah, I, so I know, I know sometimes it feels like and can be perceived as perceived of as a big burden, a heavy burden, excuse me, and it is. But I do think my role um, is that I have to be fearless. Um, and I don't think I have to be fearless all the time. I use the term fearless because I think it's important for me to conduct myself in a way and lead in a way that allows those who come who will come after me to know that it can be done and believe that it can be done. Um, I think I've been intentional about that, especially since I've grown up in predominantly white spaces, right? Growing up in Madison, Wisconsin, attending Duke University, attending University of North Carolina um, School of Law, and then being primary in, a, in a workspace that's predominantly, overwhelmingly white, I do think I have a responsibility in the spirit of true leadership to forge through challenges in ways that make other people say, oh, look, that can be done. Or because she did this, I know that when it comes time to tell my truth, I can do it as well. Um, and I don't, and I use the term fearless 
but that doesn't mean that I'm without fear, right? Um, it means that I've learned to reconcile, um, come to terms with and be at peace with that fear. However, I also understand that I can use that fear as fuel, right? In all that I do and who that I, and, and who I am. So I would say that's the way in which I, I personally um, look to intentionally pave the path for others and hopefully to inspire others as well. I think I kind of touched on that a little bit before when I was talking about, you know, just the way I see myself as everything that I do as a form of service. Um, I see my role is as continuing to be that way um, and not seeing things as, you know, a task necessarily that like kind of like what Nana said, um, a task that is too great or too, you know, just a heavy burden at, or see it as a burden, not to see it that way. Um, but just to be a part of the action, like not just be someone that philosophically says, you know, this is how you can go about doing it, or this is how you should do things or, or you shouldn't do things, but actually be a part of the action. And I take a, a very special interest in, you know, working with children um, and families who, and people who work with children. And so, or young people in general, I would include the younger adults in that too. Um, so my, my role, I see it as, you know, being a person that really listens to them um, and hears them out on their ideas about things um, and shows them in ways, like I said, that I'm not just talking about it, but I'm actually doing these things with them. I'm being a part of the action with them um, and empowering them in some way, like teaching them that, like what we spoke about before, but teaching them about who, what their history is and um, what the history is when it comes to these various different things or these various things. Um, and teaching them that it doesn't have to stay that way and that it's okay to be that one voice in a, in a voice of many that might all be coming together to say one thing, but you're over here saying another thing and that it's okay to be that one person. Um, like I, I, I know throughout the, this whole discussion, uh, the theme that I've had has been talking about my dad and my dad was always one of those persons that taught us that you don't mistreat people just because you can and you always, um, speak up for people you know there's always going to be somebody in the group that is that would be considered voiceless or that may not be able to speak up for themselves so you be that person you be okay with being the person to speak up for them and you be okay with making sure that if you see somebody mistreating somebody just because they can that you speak up in that situation too so i see my role as being that that same thing you know I, I was taught that at a very very early age and I got in trouble a whole lot through school and all that trying to be the voice for somebody else um but it gave me good training for where I am today uh, being an advocate for people all the time and so I, I just see my role in continuing to be that and just like I said listening really really well um taking the action with the persons that I'm trying to be the voice to and giving them the giving them the voice of being a part of the action um and just you know, just, like I said, just listening to them so that they can know that they're a part of it and that we're all in it together. So, you know, both of you are, and Ajamu as well, when he was um, able to be with us, uh, are, are very intentional. And, and I think both of you have used that, that term in describing your approach. But both of you are intentional about your behavior. You're very self-aware. And that can be challenging for, for young people. And I think what oftentimes happens is as you get older, uh, you, you are able to reflect 
and to make conscious decisions about how you were going to be and also to be able to self-reflect and see where you need to grow. Um, how do you convey that to the young people that you interact with and help them not to let their emotions run away um, with them such that they're not able to think um, real deliberately about their their actions or their conduct one way that i try to do it is um especially with the kids like for and i use for example the kids that we interact with as clients so the young people um and most of them are probably preteen to teenagers right so we try i try to meet them where they are um, and what I mean by that is try to get to know them and learn more about who they are as a person. And so maybe they've, and we've, we've had to form a relationship with each other because they're charged or they, they're being accused of, um, say, stealing something from a store. And I try to come to the table with them and make sure that they understand that I'm not judging them and I'm not seeing them just as this bad kid that stole something from a store or being accused of stealing something from a store, but I want to know who they are. And if it ends up coming out to be that they really did steal something from the store, trying to empower them, and like you said, and try to show them that that's, that's not all of who they are as a person. And that that one experience is not what shapes them. And that's not the legacy or the, the what they want people to know them as. And so I try to first take that approach and then use that as a you know, find out what things do they like to do or what they what their interests are and maybe hone in on some of those things so that I can show them that, you know, maybe we need to channel that energy that you had you had over here into this thing that you really are interested in and that you feel really strongly about and try to give them the confidence more in that area so that they can see if we can grow that confidence in that area, then we can grow that confidence in another area. And so that's an approach that I try to use with younger people, because like you said, um, we don't want young people to feel like, um, we don't want young people to um, to feel like that's just another grown person or adult that's just speaking at me and talking down my throat and I don't, it's going in one ear out the other. We, you know, we gotta really meet them where they are. And nowadays, especially, and I, I talked about that younger group, but I'm of the age now where if you if I say the word millennial, then the millennials start to be like, what? Why are you automatically speaking negative about me? And that's just that term in and of itself now is it's a negative connotation to it, because whenever older people, seasoned folks are to use the word millennial, the millennials take it as, oh, now they're about to talk about how we're lazy and how we think we're entitled and we don't want to, we want everything handed to us and like all of this different stuff. And so I try to also talk to other adults and more seasoned persons and remind them that the millennials and the younger people have a lot to bring to the table and we need to listen from them. We can learn a whole lot from them. They like to be on social media and they like to be on all these different gadgets. So take use that to your advantage. Let them blossom in that area. Give them some tasks in which they can actually grow and you know what I mean? They can utilize those skills that they really enjoy and that they have and we can all make it work. And then if you give them that space, then they'll give us some space to be able to pour into them in the ways that we feel like we need to pour into them. So I, you know, it kind of goes back to the whole listening and meeting people where they are. I would say that I um, try to be deliberate um, about reminding younger folks that the journey to self-awareness is winding. Um, the journey to self-awareness is long. 
And it is a journey that most people have actually often not reached the destination, right? The ultimate destination. Um, and I'm, I'm still on that journey and walking that path myself. So I think it's always helpful to reaffirm that you are not, you, you know, you have not necessarily reached where you want to be, or you're not necessarily who you want to be yet, but that doesn't mean as you embark on that journey, you still can't do the good work that you want to do. I think I'm still often led by emotions, right? But it's that self-awareness that leads me to be able to say, hey, Nana, you know what you're doing is, um, is, is because you're heated right now, you're hot, you're about to go off. And even acknowledging that is, is really consequential in that path and in that journey um, to checking those emotions or tempering them rather. Um, so I tried to do that through my personal testimony and really talking about it and reaffirming that where you are now is not, is not where you have to be down the road, um, even if you are not exactly um, where you want to be at that point either. So just reminding you know, folks that it's a journey and I continue to be on that journey myself, no matter how, um, how much it seems like I've conquered those challenges, um, I'm continuing to work on them as well. So this has been an interesting time uh, for our community, for this country. Of course, we just uh, dealt with the storming of the Capitol January the 6th. We had, of course, the election in November, a turbulent time period with COVID. We had um, racial, uh, not quite reconciliation, but demands for equity. Can you talk about what this, particularly this past year, how that has affected you and what your thoughts are about the future? That's a tough one. Um, it's a tough one in that it's probably easy, feels easy to answer because it's so much that has happened that has affected me. But I want to be very careful in talking about it because I don't want to be re-affected. <laughs> By just talking about it um and i the first thing that popped up in my mind was of, of of course COVID, and then dealing with all the the black lives that we've lost at the hands of police officers um you know and others and, and white people just quite frankly um and those are two big things that i've had to have really tough conversations with my kids about and so that's why those things have affected me probably more, oh, those are the most prevalent things that come to mind. I'm not going to say that, but they, yeah, they've affected me more. Um, and I, it, I always think about, and I, I talk about this often, raising two young black boys to be strong black men one day is a very tough position to be in. Um, and I have to have these conversations with my kids that before I became a parent, I never thought about I would have to have, or I never, you know, I didn't have any preparation on having to have those conversations. And that one is about you are a young black male. And I use this example. I even talked about this in my class the other day that I have my youngest son who is 10 years old, loves to put on these sweatshirts with hoodies. And because of the things that we have experienced in this country recently and over the years, historically and recently, um, I have this huge, just automatic feeling 
sense of just negativity that overcomes me and just I get hot even in my whole body immediately when I see him with a hoodie on and he has no idea he's not thinking anything about you know all of these things that we've had to deal with and all this and that but I say buddy you cannot put that hood you cannot wear that hoodie if we go outside this house and we go in the store you got to take that hoodie off and he's like I just like my hoodie and I have to like have this discussion about well people view young black boys with hoodies on this way and you know these are tough conversations to have to have with a 10 year old and I've had these conversations with him younger than 10 okay and to them, it's like, well, mommy, I'm just 10 and I don't think this way. You know what I mean? And I'm like, but you are, you people in the society don't see you as just a little 10 year old that is impressionable and as, you know, just young and whatever. They see, they see you as a threat. And I hate to tell you that, but that's the way it is. You know what I mean? And those, they see it. I can't shield them from it. I wouldn't shield them from a lot of it. And I can't because they, they are on YouTube and they're on the, they're looking at their, so my, my oldest son, he talks about right now, one of his favorite TV shows right now is CNN and he's 11, you know what I mean? Because he's trying to keep up with all of what's going on politically and he wants to see like, okay, and it's sad, but he's even said like, I wonder who got shot today. To have to hear your kids say things like that, you know what I mean? And for them to know that they could be a target just because of who they are, but because of the color of their skin, you know what I mean? So that is one. And then, of course, the COVID, it just adds on. We're all in the house and we're in a bubble and, you know, like all of those different things. But those things have been the most prevalent for me and shape, you know, that has really affected me as a mother, especially, because I don't just talk this to students and out in the community. I have to actually deal with this in my own like personal life. Attorney Asante Smith. So we've got a few more minutes, but we want to get your thoughts as well. Yes, I'll wrap it up. I would say um, the ways in which the events of the past year have affected me have affected me have been that I have become more than I already was um, of a realist and also more unapologetic. I really feel like we have a duty. I think we, you know, when we watch or listen to the media and we learn about these tragic instances of inhumanity in our country that has motivated me to look at my daily life with a magnifying glass and identify and again be intentional about identifying the ways in which injustices are alive in our lives each and every day and acknowledging those injustices and saying what can i do today right to address that injustice today in my house or in my um in my place of work in my organization what can i do at that, level, at that level on this day at this time. So I think it's forced me to be, uh, think more critically about what I can do in the pursuit of justice and in this effort to be a leader in advocacy, especially as it, con as it pertains to racial issues and doing so unapologetically and also uh, realistically. All right, well, unfortunately we are out of time, but we'd like to thank our guest Attorney Nana Asante-Smith, who is president of the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers, Professor Dorothy Harrison Mitchell at NCCU School of Law in the clinical department and also a member of the North Carolina State Bar Council, and Ajamu Dillahunt Holloway, a historian, a graduate of North Carolina Central University and a PhD student at the University of Michigan. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. 
If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.